السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners, we are in the final few days of the current Islamic Hijri year of 1438. Next week, we will witness the end of the Hijjah and the arrival of Muharram, the first month of the new 1439th. Islamic Hijri year. The Islamic calendar begins with the Hijrah and all civilizations, peoples have always marked the beginning of their calendar from a great momentous event. It was the Sahaba عنهم, who actually chose the Hijrah as the beginning of the Islamic calendar. During the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab he gathered the senior Sahaba عنهم, and consulted them about marking a beginning point for calculating months and years. A formal official calendar. And there was much consultation. Many of the Sahaba عنهم, made their suggestions. But ultimately, most of the Sahaba عنهم, suggested one thing that was already the opinion of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. And as a result, that's what he decided. And thus the Islamic calendar was marked with the beginning of the Hijrah. The Sahaba عنهم, some of them even suggested other dates. But what's remarkable is that collectively the Sahaba عنهم, chose the Hijrah. The emigration of the Prophet وسلم, and the companions from Mecca to Medina as the beginning point of the Islamic calendar. They did not choose the birth of the Prophet or even the birth of Islam in the 40th year of the Prophet life. Nor did they choose the beginning of the revelation of the Quran or even some of the miracles of the Prophet such as the miraculous journey of Mi'raj, Isra and Mi'raj in the 50th year of Hijrah. Sorry, in the 52nd year of Hijrah, uh, uh, of the Prophet ﷺ's life. Nor did they choose any of the other momentous events 
after the Hijrah, such as some of the key and decisive battles of Badr or the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. In fact, they did not even choose the greatest victory and conquest of the Prophet ﷺ of the city of Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah. Nor did they choose the farewell pilgrimage, which was a huge occasion. And nor did they choose the departure of the Prophet ﷺ from this world as the beginning point of calculating months and years and dates in Islam. Collectively, the Sahaba chose the Hijrah of Rasulullah his emigration from Mecca to Medina. Furthermore, Umar actually said on that occasion, whilst explaining some of the reasons for choosing the Hijrah, he said that the Hijrah was the criterion and the distinction between haqq and batil, between truth and falsehood. And these were the words of Umar radiallahu So why has the Islamic calendar been chosen to be calculated from the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Why was it so significant? And how... And in what way did it surpass so many of the other momentous events in the life of the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims? I've spoken on some of this in thorough detail, such as in the few talks I've given on Hijrah in general, as well as in the commentary of the Hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha from Sahih al-Bukhari in which she relates the hijrah of Rasulullah with her father Abu Bakr as-Siddiq So I've commented on that in detail as well. But today, as promised, I'd like to speak not about the hijrah of the Messenger but the hijrah of the companions, of the Sahaba to illustrate why the hijrah was a criterion and a distinction between truth and falsehood. And why the Sahaba عنهم, chose the hijrah as a beginning point of the calendar. And why it meant so much to the extent that throughout the Quran, Allah praises those who had done hijrah. And in the eighth year of hijrah at the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ actually declared that لا هجرة بعد الفتح that after the conquest of Mecca there is no hijrah, there is no emigration. With the conquest of Mecca in the eighth year of hijrah, hijrah came to an end. And from that point onwards, the whole ummah was divided into two groups. One very small elite group who were chosen up over and above everyone else. And the other group was the rest of the ummah. And that one elite, special group, beloved to Allah and beloved to his messenger, وسلم, was the group that had done hijrah. And the other group, 
constituting the rest of the Ummah is that group that never did Hijrah and will never get the opportunity to do that Hijrah. Not even the companions surrounding the Prophet ﷺ who had not taken part in the Hijrah could acquire that honor after the eighth year, after the conquest of Mecca. So it really was special. Allah praises them throughout the Qur'an. They are always given preference and privilege over everyone else. When the Prophet ﷺ led prayer, the people who stood in the front rows immediately behind him were the muhajirun, the emigrants. When he had gatherings, even though it was a very egalitarian community and society, and everyone was treated equally, still, even in that equal climate, the Prophet ﷺ would reserve special places at the front for the senior muhajirun and the emigrants. When he would consult the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the primary people who he, whom he would consult would be the muhajirun. They were the elite of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum during the life of the Prophet wasallam and even after. Hijrah meant a lot. And possibly one of the reasons why we don't regard Hijrah to be so important is that we may merely think of it as an emigration, a journey from one place to another. So we may think of it as the companions giving up life in Mecca and just choosing to move to a different city of Medina. That wasn't Hijrah. To understand Hijrah, we need to understand the history and the environment and the political, social climate of Mecca and Medina. The word Hijrah doesn't mean emigration, originally. It means leaving, shunning, abandoning. That's the original meaning of hijr, where the word hijrah derives from. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَهْجُرْهُمْ hajran jamila," Telling the Prophet ﷺ how to respond to the verbal attacks and abuse of the Quraysh. Prophet ﷺ was told, وَهْجُرْهُمْ hajran jamila," That shun them, a beautiful shunning. Leave them. A in a beautiful way, i.e., do not respond, do not be provoked, do not be agitated by them. So just leave them, shun them. That's the meaning of hajr. Allah says in Surah Al-Muddathir, قُمْ فَأَنذِرْ وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاحِرْ وَالرُّدْزَ فَهْجَرْ قُمْ فَأَنذِرْ وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاحِرْ وَالرُّدْزَ فَهْجَرْ Again, addressing the Prophet wasallam, Allah says, Impurity, shun, abandon, leave. In another verse, وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا And the Messenger said, O oh my Lord, indeed my people have left this Qur'an abandoned, mahjur. So all of these words of the Qur'an, and there are more, are related to the root word of hajr, which means to leave, to shun, to abandon.
That's what hijrah means. It doesn't just mean emigrating or traveling from one place to another. It means leaving, shunning, abandoning. And what that meant for the Prophet ﷺ and for the Sahaba عنهم, was that everything they held dear, their birthplace, their wealth, their property, their families, their loved ones, their home city, their kin, their clan, their tribes, the only protection they had they were willing to abandon and renounce all of this. Makkah was a city-state. Medina was an enemy city-state of Makkah. By doing hijrah, they were renouncing their blood, their kin, their clan, and their protection. They were renouncing their citizenship of Makkah. And for the people of Mecca and their own families, this was the ultimate betrayal. This was the ultimate treason. Treason punishable by imprisonment and torture as a minimum in the eyes of the Meccans. Or by death. Because they regarded this as high treason. That's what hijrah meant. And yet still, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, Upon the call of Allah's Messenger وسلم, they were willing to renounce their citizenship of the city of Mecca, renounce the protection of their kin, their blood, their clans, their families, to renounce all claim to their wealth, their property, their belongings, their homes, and leave Mecca al Mukarramah once and for all, for good, never to return, except temporarily. They were willing to do that. That's why Allah honored them. That's why Rasulullah honored them. To understand the climate, even the Prophet required protection. There was no law. It was a tribal culture. There was no law, there was no government, there was no central authority. There was only a balance of power. Everyone had to belong to someone, a group. So people took shelter, they took refuge in their families, immediate families. So the family relied on itself. Brothers, sisters, siblings, the immediate family relied on itself, on one another. Families then relied on other families. These families constituted a clan, they relied on the clan. Clans relied on their fellow clans. Fellow clans relied on their tribe. Tribes relied on their fellow tribes. And these tribes relied on their super tribe. It was only in this way that a person's life, wealth and property was secure. Even the noble messenger, وسلم, despite being who he was, with his band of followers in Mecca, he had the protection of his uncle Abu Talib. When Abu Talib died in the fiftieth year of Hijrah, uh, in the fiftieth year of the Prophet ﷺ's life, leadership of the clan of Banu Hashim to which the Prophet ﷺ belonged shifted to his other uncle Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab 
no longer gave, or the Prophet ﷺ and his loved ones were no longer confident of the protection of Abu Lahab, because he was in cahoots with the enemies amongst the Quraysh. So the Prophet ﷺ, initially, even the non-Muslim members of his family and clan, because they belonged and stuck together as a clan, they afforded him protection under the leadership of Abu Talib. The Quraysh would say to Abu Talib that hand over your nephew to us. He would refuse. Renounce your protection of your nephew. Abu Talib would refuse. And that was the only reason that Quraysh did not physically and directly harm the Prophet because of that balance of power. They knew that if they harmed him, He had the protection of his immediate family. His immediate family then had the protection of the clan of Banu Hashim. Banu Hashim then had the protection of the fellow clans. So this was their calculation. This is why they left the Prophet alone. And they knew that if they could somehow remove the protection of Abu Talib, they would be able to do what they wished with the Prophet This is why the boycott in the valley of Abu Talib came about. It wasn't so much directly at the Prophet Rather, it was aimed at Abu Talib and his clan. Because they said to him, if you do not renounce your protection of your nephew, we will then boycott you and your clan. Abu Talib, and even many of the non-Muslim members of his Banu Hashim clan, they were willing to suffer the boycott of the rest of the Quraysh rather than give up the protection of Rasulullah But when Abu Talib passed away in the 50th year of the Prophet wasallam's life, leadership went over to Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab was his sworn enemy. The Prophet ﷺ no longer had his protection. And the clan of Banu Hashim couldn't do anything because they were reliant on their leader. They couldn't split the clan. So even those who wanted to support him, individually they could not support him because they never had the protection or the support of the clan of Banu Hashim under the leadership of Abu, uh, Abu Lahab. So the Prophet ﷺ actually began looking for protection elsewhere. This is why he left Mecca to go to Taif. We know he went to Taif. And we all commonly believe that he went to Taif to give da'wah. He did go to Taif to give da'wah. But why particularly to Taif to give da'wah? The da'wah was to invite the Banu Thaqif, the rival tribe in Ta'if, they were the rivals of the Quraysh in Mecca, to invite the clans and the tribe of Banu Thaqif to Islam. And if they became his followers, that way he would gain their protection. The people of Ta'if rejected the Prophet ﷺ, and he came back. Do you know the Prophet ﷺ did not and could not enter Mecca again because he did not have the protection of his own clan, nor did he win the protection of 
Banu Thaqif in Ta'if. It was only when Mut'im ibn Adi from the Banu Nawfal, one of the fellow clans of the Prophet Sallallahu family, when he came out of Mecca and he was a non-Muslim, he was a father of Jubayr ibn Mut'im radiyallahu he came out of Mecca with his sons and he knew that the Prophet Sallallahu needed protection. So he said to the Prophet Sallallahu I will give you my protection. And Mut'im ibn Adi, as a non-Muslim, he took his sons, brought the Prophet Sallallahu into Mecca after his visit to Ta'if, took him to the Haram and he stood guard, armed with his sons. And under the armed guard of Mut'im ibn Adi, a non-Muslim, and his sons, the Prophet ﷺ performed tawaf around the Kaaba. And Mut'im ibn Adi announced that he is under my protection. So again, it was that balance of power. Now that Mut'im had given the, his protection to the Prophet no one could do anything to the Prophet ﷺ because they would have to then fend with Mut'im ibn Adi. If they had to contend with Mut'im ibn Adi, they would then have to contend with his clan, the Banu Nawfal. And then it just escalated. So it was only with the protection of Mut'im ibn Adi, a non-Muslim, that the Prophet ﷺ was actually able to enter Makkah al-Mukarramah. I've given this example to explain the climate then. That if even someone as noble, as powerful, as prestigious, as the Messenger ﷺ found it difficult without the protection of the family of kin, clan and blood, then imagine the other Sahaba This is why people like Umar ibn al-Khattab Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Uthman, and the other senior Sahaba radiyallahu anhum ajma'een. Why weren't they targeted? It wasn't because of their wealth. No. They weren't targeted because of this balance of power. If any one of them was targeted, the Quraysh would then have to contend with their families and then their clans. And this would just lead to an inter-clan war within the Quraysh. So they left them. They wanted to, but it was only for this fear that they left them. The ones they did target were the ones who had no family clan protection. They were the ones they tortured. So, Ammar ibn Yasir, his mother, Sumiyah, the first martyr in Islam, his father, Yasir. Now, they were freed slaves. So they never had family and clan. But even they couldn't survive in Mecca without the protection. So because they were freed by the Banu Makhzum clan, they had the protection of the Banu Makhzum clan. So no one would harm them. Because if someone harmed the family of Yasir, his wife Sumayya, his son Ammar and the family, they would have to contend with the Banu Makhzum. And the Banu Makhzum clan was powerful. So nobody harmed them even though they were foreigners and they were slave, freed slaves. So why were, they, why were they then tortured? Because they were tortured by the Banu Makhzum clan itself. Abu Jahl of Banu Makhzum, 
he and the others tortured them. Since they were being tortured by their own protectors, nobody could defend them. This is how Bilal radiallahu an, Ammar ibn Yasir and his noble parents who were both martyred. This is how they, many of them and others like them were tortured. Khabbab ibn al-Ard radiallahu anhum ajma'een. That was a climate in Mecca. It was under these circumstances that when the Prophet said, emigrate to Medina, they had to do so secretly. And to emigrate meant signing their own death warrant. Because the Quraysh would refuse to allow any of them to leave. Why? To allow them to leave was considered to be a disgrace. That we are weak, these people were able to escape us. For them to leave meant high treason because it would mean abandoning their own city, renouncing their citizenship, and joining the enemy city of Medina, or the, as they would call it, Yathrib, they wouldn't allow it. This is why the Quraysh actively searched out, looked out for, and pursued, aggressively pursued anyone who travelled to do hijrah. Sometimes, if they ever caught wind of someone making an intention to do a hijrah, they would imprison them. Just like Abu Jahl, he imprisoned his own brothers. And others as well. They imprisoned their own family members as soon as they learned that they may do hijrah. It was under these circumstances that the Sahaba anhum emigrated from Makkah to Medina. This is why they were so beloved to Allah. And his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is why hijrah was the greatest deed then. And why no deed can match the hijrah of the early companions radiallahu anhum. And how did the sahaba radiallahu anhum do hijrah? There, there are so many examples. But even the weak, the blind, the poor. Umar radiallahu anhum did hijrah. And when he left Mecca, he went with a group of 20 Sahaba radiallahu anhum. The Quraysh couldn't stop him. He actually challenged them. So they couldn't stop him. But the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum, one of the first people to emigrate from Mecca to Medina, under these circumstances, like I said, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa did hijrah, they sent out search parties again after him. Under these circumstances... Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiallahu an, a companion who was blind. He was one of the first people to do hijrah. He and Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhuma. A blind sahabi, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, he did hijrah from Mecca to Medina under those circumstances. One of the first people to do hijrah. Another blind sahabi, Abd ibn Jahsh, the brother of Zainab bin Jahsh radiallahu anha. He was married to the daughter of Abu Sufyan, and he was blind. He was looking for an opportunity to do hijrah, but he couldn't. His wife, his own wife opposed him. His own wife opposed him, because she was a daughter of Abu Sufyan. Eventually, he managed to find an opportunity. And along with other family members, he secretly, even though he was a leading member of the Quraysh, he secretly left Mecca with his, some members of his family as a blind individual. 
and he traveled from Mecca to Medina and did the Hijrah. Abu Sufyan, who was his father-in-law, as soon as he learns that my son-in-law, Abd ibn Jahsh, has left, he was so enraged that he went to his house and he claimed the whole house and he sold off the house and all its possessions and took the money. His own son-in-laws. This is how the Sahaba عنهم, lost their families, their blood, their kin. Husbands and wives were separated. Mothers and children were separated. Parents were separated from their children. Siblings were separated. But they did it out of choice. And they lost their wealth. Wealth wasn't anything for them. When Umar did hijrah, Ayyash ibn Rabi'ah, he was one of the family members of Abu Jahl and others. They sent people to collect him from Medina. They misled him that your mother is in a terrible condition. She needs to see you. You need to visit her. Umar reassured him or tried to convince him that this is a plot. Do not return. Ayash was a bit confused at the time because of his mother. Umar radiallahu just to keep him in Medina, even said to him, I will give you whatever you need. You know that all the wealth I have, he said, here, I give you half of my wealth. Take half of my wealth, but stay here. Do not return to Mecca. Umar radiallahu was willing to part with his wealth. And we've all heard the story of Suhaib ibn Sinan al-Rumi radiallahu Suhaib ibn al-Sanan al-Rumi, more famously known as Suhaib al-Rumi, Suhaib the Roman. Before I continue, I'd just like to clarify something here. He wasn't Roman. We believe of, well, people often say of him that he was Roman. He wasn't Roman. Suhaib radiallahu was an Arab, a born Arab from northern Arabia. He, in the, I've explained this before, in the wars well, in the, uh, in the many battles between Byzantine Rome and Sassanid Persia, since they had northern Arab tribes who were allied to both Byzantine Rome and Sassanid Persia, and they were also involved in the fighting, Suhaib as a child was captured by the Byzantine Romans because his family was aligned with the Sassanid Persians. So in their battles, in that war, he was captured by the Byzantine Romans, and they took him to some area of Byzantine Rome. doesn't mean Rome, but uh, Byzantine Rome, so Anatolia or modern-day Turkey, or even northern Arabia, Sham, Syria, modern-day Syria. Suhaib, as a child, grew up amongst these Byzantine Romans, but he was a born Arab. He was Arab. And he learnt Greek. Again, another... Although they were Byzantine Romans, as a continuation of the Byzantine Roman Empire, of the Roman Empire, in language and in culture, they were actually Greek. So they spoke Greek. So when we come across classical Arumiya, in, uh, when we come across the word Arumiya in classical Islamic sources, in Hadith, etc., it actually means Greek, not Roman, in terms of language. And this is why in some of the Orientalist translations, 
in the surah of the Quran, Alif Lam Mim Rum, the 30th surah of the Quran, Surah Al Rum, the words Alif Lam Mim Rum literally mean Alif Lam Mim, the Romans have been vanquished. But in some of the Orientalist translations from the earlier Orientalist translators, the words are actually Alif Lam Mim, the Greeks have been defeated. So people often say Greek, is, the word is very clear, a room, but it's because in culture, in language, they were Greek. So Suhaib radiallahu an learnt Greek, and that's why he was referred to, he spoke fluent Greek, and he was referred to as Suhaib al-Rumi, the Roman. But then he fled from, according to some reports, he was he was sold to someone in Mecca. According to others, he, was, he came, he fled, and he came to Mecca himself. In any case, he was a born Arab, but he was referred to as a Roman simply because he, as a child, had been there, lived in that culture, learnt the language, etc. Otherwise, he was actually an Arab. So Suhaib al-Rumi, in Mecca al-Mukarramah, he managed to engage in trade and business and became quite wealthy. He embraced Islam at a very early stage when the time came for him to do hijrah. Suhaib radiallahu anhu, again, he was being watched and monitored and he secretly left Mecca. The Quraysh pursued him. When they pursued him, they caught up with him. And there, were, there was a lot, of, a lot of words were exchanged, but some of those words were that they said to him, Suhaib, where are you going? We won't let you go. And if you wish to flee, you're fleeing with your wealth as well. You came to Mecca poor and you enriched yourself here. Now you flee with your wealth. Suhaib radiallahu he had a quiver of arrows. He laid down his quiver and laid down his arrows. And he said, do not approach me because as you know, I'm an expert archer. I will take as many of you with me as I can. I will not spare you. If, if it's wealth that interests you, then let me go. And you can have all my wealth in Mecca. I'll even tell you where my treasures are buried. You can have my properties. You can even have that wealth which I have deposited with other people. And even the treasure which I have buried, I'll guide you to it. Are you satisfied with that? They said, fine, we'll let you go. The whole band of the Quraysh Quraysh who were pursuing him, he traded them off. By giving them all of his wealth, everything that he had, he renounced it. And he continued alone to Medina, all by himself, penniless. When he arrived in Medina, the Sahaba began congratulating him. So he said, over what? Eventually, when he was taken to the Prophet ﷺ, even before he mentioned anything. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, O Suhaib, Rabih al meaning the trade was profitable, the trade was profitable. And it's said that the verse of the Holy Quran was revealed in his honor. That there are of the servants of Allah, or there are of the people, those who sell their souls. Seeking the pleasure of Allah And that was Suhaib al-Rumi radiallahu anhu. So when it came to wealth, they renounced their wealth. It didn't matter. 
Abd ibn Jahsh lost his whole house, his property, he was blind, it didn't bother him. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum was blind, he did hijrah. There was another Sahabi he was weak, blind. Again, he wanted to do the hijrah, but he couldn't. Eventually, he managed to muster the strength and the means, and he told his family, put me on my mount. They put him on his mount, and blind he started his hijrah from Mecca. But he reached near the Naim, where those of us who've been for Umrah and Hajj, especially for Umrah, uh, if you've. The Naim is where Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha anha, was instructed by the Prophet وسلم, to enter into the state of Ihram. So she went from Mecca to Naim, just on the outskirts, it's about six miles out. And she entered into the state of Ihram and returned. And now we have that famous Masjid Aisha. So near the Masjid of Aisha, anha, well, in Tan'im, near that Masjid, this is where the Sahabi reached and he passed away. And he's actually buried there. So it's narrated that it was of this Sahabi that Allah actually revealed the verse that those who... That whoever leaves seeking to emigrate for the sake of Allah, whoever leaves his home seeking to emigrate for the sake of Allah, and then death seizes him, then indeed his reward has become binding on Allah. Meaning Allah undertakes to give him his reward. He was blind. Unable to travel. And he, in fact, he couldn't even go as far as a few miles. And he died at the Naim. But that was their struggle. That was their sacrifice. That was their intention. And these were all blind Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. According to some narrations, his name was Damarah. Damarah radiyallahu an. Abd ibn Jahsh radiyallahu an. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiyallahu an. We're not even speaking about those Sahaba who are fit and strong. Umar radiallahu anhu and others. Children. We, Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu was a child and he did hijrah with his father Umar radiallahu anhu. But even more remarkable than Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu were the two young brothers, the sons of Abbas. Abbas the father didn't do hijrah. In fact, he embraced Islam much later. So even without the father embracing, the two sons, Abdullah ibn Abbas, who was only eight years old, and his brother, Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, who was 13 years old. Two brothers, 13 years old, Al-Fadl, and his younger brother, Abdullah, at the age of eight. These two, with just one other assistant, they did hijrah from Makkah to Medina. Two young boys, 13 and eight, Abdullah and Al-Fadl his older brother. There were others who did hijrah at a young age. The weak, the poor, the blind, and the women, Allahu Akbar. Some of the greatest sacrifices when it came to hijrah were those of the women. None other than the family of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa In the first hijrah from Mecca, not to Medina, but to Abyssinia, one of the leaders was Uthman radiyallahu anhu. 
and he traveled with the daughter of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ruqayyah Anha. When the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did Hijrah from Makkah to Medina, he left his family members in Makkah. His daughter Zainab Anha, his eldest daughter, she was still in Makkah with her family, with her husband, Abu Al-As ibn Rabi'i. It's one of those strange points. But Abu Al-As ibn Rabi'i remained a non-Muslim, even whilst being married to Zainab radiyallahu anha in Mecca. And he actually fought in the Battle of Badr against his own father-in-law, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So he was in the camp of the Quraysh. He was one of the captives. The Prophet ﷺ decided that they would be ransomed. Those who could afford to pay the ransom, they would pay the ransom. Word was sent to Mecca that send your people along with your wealth to ransom your family, kin, clan members. Zainab anha sent a necklace to ransom her husband, Abu Al-As ibn Rabi'i. When the necklace arrived, and it was brought before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he broke down in tears, because that was a necklace of her mother Khadija radiallahu anha. She had given it to him. So the Prophet ﷺ broke down in tears. So Sahaba he requested them that if you wish, in honor of her mother, allow him to go. Imagine he was a leader, but he sought their permission. The Sahaba agreed. The Prophet ﷺ returned the necklace to Zainab anha, did not take it as ransom. And Abu Al-As ibn Rabi' her husband, was freed. But the Prophet said to her on one con- him on one condition, send my daughter to Medina. Allow my daughter to come here. Abu Al-As agreed that I will let Zainab come to you. Prior to that, he wouldn't. Abu Al-As ibn Rabi' returned to Mecca. He then allowed his wife Zainab, عنها, the daughter of Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to travel and do hijrah. But imagine the circumstances. He could not accompany her. And he didn't. But secretly he told his brother Kinana that you go and take Zainab. So Kinana, Abu Al-As's brother, Zainab radiallahu anha's brother in law. He secretly took Zainab, the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he led her out of Mecca to do the hijrah. The Quraysh found out. And they came. One of them came and started prodding the camel of Zainab radiallahu anha. He kept him prodding it with his spear. 
to the extent that he injured it so much that the camel collapsed. When the camel collapsed, Zainab radiallahu anha fell off it. And she was pregnant at the time and she suffered a miscarriage. By that time, these were the low ones amongst the Quraysh, the more belligerent ones. Then Abu Sufyan arrived with some of the other leaders. And he said to them, what's happening here? Then he said to Kinana, he said to Kinana, this is your fault. You should have not taken her out of the city. And Abu Sufyan's words were that if we allow her to go, people will say that we are weak. So I'll tell you what to do. Don't take her now. Bring her back to Mecca. Leave her be in Mecca for a while until things settle down. And then secretly you can take her. But you can't take her now. Lest the Arabs say that she was able to escape Mecca because of our softness and our weakness. Zainab radiallahu anha was forced back to Mecca. There she was kept in Mecca under guard. And it was only later that she was allowed to travel to Medina. But she actually suffered a miscarriage. And that was Zainab, the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a miscarriage in the event of the hijrah. Umm Salama radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, at that time, she was married to Abu Salama radiallahu anha. All of these sahaba radiallahu anhu were very closely related. Abu Salama radiallahu anha, who was the first husband of Umm Salama radiallahu anha, he was actually the Prophet ﷺ's cousin brother. He was his first cousin. And not only that, but just like Hamza ﷺ, he was also the milk brother of the Prophet ﷺ. So Abu Salama was the milk brother of the Prophet ﷺ. He was very close to him. He was married to Umm Salama Abu Salama decided to travel to Medina and do the hijrah with his wife Umm Salama. They had a baby called Salama. Salama, the father of Salama and the mother of Salama. They left Mecca. As soon as they left, they hadn't proceeded very far at all when her family, her immediate family, the Banu al-Mughira, they came. And they grabbed the reins of Abu Salama's camel. He, they were both on the same camel with the baby. They grabbed the reins of Abu Salama's camel. And the Banu Mughira, her family, said to him, We can't stop you, but we will not allow you to take our daughter, Umm Salama. She's our family. We won't let you take her wherever you want and go to Yathrib. So they pulled the camel, they pushed the got him off, they got the mother and the baby off, and they said, we will keep her, we're not going to allow you to take her. So Abu Salama radiallahu anhu was left alone. When Abu Salama's family, his immediate family, the Banu Abdul Asad, as soon as they found out that this is what the other family has done, they came. 
and they couldn't claim Umm Salama radiyallahu anha. So they said, if you've taken your daughter from her husband and our family member Abu Salama, then by no means will we allow you to keep our son, meaning the baby Salama. So they said, we will take the baby. They began jostling and fighting amongst themselves to the extent that Umm Salama radiallahu anha relates, with her own eyes she witnessed this, that they began pulling the baby, one and the other, to such an extent that in the struggle, they ended up pulling his arm out of his socket. That was Salama radiallahu the baby. They pulled the baby's arm out of his socket. Then, Abu Salama's family, the Banu Abdul Asad, they did overpower the other, so they took the baby. Subhanallah. The baby was taken by Abu Salama's family, the Banu Abdul Asad. The mother, Umm Salama radiallahu anha, was taken by her family, the Banu Mughira. Abu Salama was left alone. He traveled alone onwards to Medina. Umm Salama radiallahu anha says that I was kept behind by my family. Every morning I would go out to the plain of Mecca and I would sit there and I would weep all day long till the evening and then I'd come back home and then the next day I'd go back in the morning and I'd sit there and I'd weep all day and then come back home she said I did this for one year for one year I never saw my child meaning I did not have my child with me or my husband husband was in Medina Umm Salama was with her family, forcibly kept. The baby was forcibly kept by the other family. After one year, one of her own family members <coughs> saw her weeping and he took pity on her and he went to the rest of the clan and he said, why do we do this to our own daughter? Have mercy. They agreed. They reunited her with her baby But imagine the circumstances, none of them, none of the family said, we will allow you to go or we will take you to Medina, to Yathrib. All they did is they reunited her with her baby. Then Umm Salama radiallahu anha, such sacrifice, such commitment, she decided to do hijrah, she and her baby all alone, from Mecca. A, a non-Muslim Arab saw her, a noble, Uthman ibn Talha, and he said to her, where are you going? She said, I'm going to Medina. He said, all alone? She said, yes, by Allah, other than Allah, other than Allah, I only have my baby. He said, this can't be done. You can't go alone. He said, I will take you. And in a noble manner, a non-Muslim Arab, he took her camel, he fixed the hodah on the camel, and he allowed her to ride, and he would stay in front. Umm Salama radiallahu anha swore in the name of Allah and said, By Allah, I have never seen a more noble Arab than him. Throughout the journey, he would never come anywhere near me. But when, when it came time to rest, I would dismount, he would prepare the camel, he would help it rest, he would remove the hoda, and then he'd go and rest at a distance. When the time came to resume the journey, he came, prepared the camel, put me on the camel, and he would lead the way. 
she, she said, by Allah, I've never seen a more noble Arab than him. He took her all the way to Yathrib, to Medina. And upon arrival at Quba, he actually said to her, there is Quba, which is to the south of the city of Medina. And he said, that's where your husband Abu Salamah is. Go to him. Ala barakatillah. And then he actually returned to Makkah. That was a nobility. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided him to Islam six years later. After the treaty of Hudaybiyah, Uthman radiallahu anhu embraced Islam, Uthman ibn Talha. That's the story of one other woman, Umm Salama radiallahu anha. Abu Salama radiallahu anha passed away. He was injured in the Battle of Uhud and then he passed away. After that, Umm Salama radiallahu anha married the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These were just some of the women, Zainab, his daughter, Umm Salama, his future wife. And again, another remarkable story of the sacrifice and the commitment of the hijrah of the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum. We've all heard of Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayd. Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayd, again, was a distant relative of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa but one of his bitterest enemies. He's the one who, once they were... In the haram, the Prophet ﷺ was praying salah. Abu Jahl, they were all seated in the hatim, beneath the canopy, in the shade, on their couches. They were observing the Prophet ﷺ praying salah. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud relates this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. Abu Jahl said, the camel, the she-camel of such and such a family has just given birth. Who will go and fetch the amniotic sac and the afterbirth, Salah Jazul, of this camel and come and dump it on Muhammad? So the worst amongst them, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu says, Ashqahum, the most evil and bitterest one amongst them. He rose and he went and he fetched this amniotic sac and the afterbirth of the she-camel. And who was that? The same Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayyid. So he went and fetched it and dumped it on the Prophet wasallam's back whilst he was in sujood, in prostration. It was so heavy that he could not rise from his prostration. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu says, I was helpless, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was stand there and watch. Then Fatima radiallahu anha, a little girl, she came, someone informed the family she came running. She pushed off the amniotic sac and the afterbirth and the filth from the back of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was able to rise. And that little Fatima radiallahu anha in the haram and the mataf of Makkah, Kaaba, she stood there abusing the leaders of the Quraysh. Then the Prophet ﷺ stood up and he made dua. Allahumma alayka bi utbah. Allahumma alayka bi shaybah. Allahumma alayka bil walid ibn utbah. Allahumma alayka bi amr ibn hisham. Allahumma alayka bi umayyat ibn khalaf. And Allahumma alayka bi uqbat ibn abi mu'ayyid. He was one of them. On one occasion he came and the Prophet ﷺ was praying. 
Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayyid took a cloth and strangled the Prophet with the cloth. He did a lot. This Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayyid was truly a bitter enemy. But it's the it's the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the bitterest enemies of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, their wives, their sons and their daughters, they embraced Islam and followed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt, despite being who he was, his young virgin unmarried daughter alone embraced Islam. And a few years later, after her father's death, he was killed in the Battle of Badr, or after the Battle of Badr. She did hijrah, young. According to some narrations, wallahu alam, her age was just 19. She did hijrah from Mecca to Medina, after the Treaty of the Hudaybiyah. So she did hijrah in the seventh year. And this young girl, she did hijrah all alone. No one, no one. She met up with a traveler on the way who accompanied her to Medina. But she actually secretly, imagine her family was still against her. Her two brothers came out looking for her and they pursued her all the way to Medina, but they couldn't catch her. And it's said that this young unmarried daughter of Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt, her name was Umm Kulthum. Umm Kulthum radiyallahu anha, she did hijrah alone, unmarried, no connection from the house of Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt. She did hijrah from Mecca to Medina, do you know how? Walking on foot. When she arrived in Medina, her two brothers followed. They couldn't catch her on the way when they arrived in Medina. They came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said to him, O Muhammad, as per the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was signed just recently, we have agreed that if anyone comes to you from Mecca, you are to return them to us. But if someone comes to us from Medina, we are under no obligation <coughs> to return them. So, O Muhammad, we as the brothers of our sister, we demand that you return her to us. She then pleaded her case with the Prophet ﷺ and she said, Ya Rasulullah, I am alone. I have no protection. I am weak. Will you allow them to take me home and turn me away from my religion? The Prophet ﷺ hesitated. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of Surah Al-Muntahina. That all believers... يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا جَاءَكُمُ الْمُؤْمِنَاتُ مُهَاجِرَاتٍ فَامْتِحِنُوهُنَّ اللَّهُ أَعْلَمُ بِإِيمَانِهِنَّ That all believers, when the believing women come to you as emigrant women, then test them. Allah is more knowing of their faith. The meaning of testing them is that the Prophet ﷺ, this is the level of sincerity in Islam that's required. Can you imagine anyone completing this journey insincerely? Yet even after this journey, 
And even to Umm Kulthum, the daughter of Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayd, the Prophet وسلم, by the instruction of the Qur'an, tested her and others. And he said to her, Have you come for any worldly reason? Have you come for marriage? Have you come fleeing from anything or fleeing to anything? And the final question was, have you come only for the love of Allah and his messenger Even they were tested to ensure that their intention was pure. Then Allah, the Prophet وسلم, refused to return her to Mecca. And she was the one who then set the pattern for any of the women who came, that they were, they were under no obligation to be returned to Mecca. The Prophet وسلم, then married her to Zayd ibn Haritha, his one-time adopted son. And she remained in his marriage till the eighth year of Hijrah when he was martyred in the Battle of Muta in northern Arabia, well, in uh, the north. So she was married to Zayd ibn Haritha. But that's just one other example of a Sahabi, or a woman, Umm Kulthum, Zainab, the daughter of the Prophet, Umm Salama. There are so many other cases. I'll suffice with this. However, I would like to end with one thing, which is to mention that to the Sahaba, their hijrah, as I said at the very beginning, was to leave Mecca once and for all never to return except temporarily. Even the Prophet ﷺ, he actually preferred that his followers never return to Mecca except for Umrah and Hajj, or except out of necessity. And if there was a necessity, they go, they remain for as long as they need to, but they come back immediately. So much so that Abdullah ibn Umar he was just a child when he went to Medina with his father. But whenever he would come back to Mecca, even long after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they had a house in Mecca. He had a house in Mecca from before that belonged to his family. Do you know? After the Hijrah, Abdullah ibn Umar never ever entered that house again. And when he would come back to Mecca for Umrah or for Hajj, and he would walk in Mecca, whenever he passed by that house, he would actually close his eyes. He wouldn't look at it. Abdullah ibn Umar would not look at his own house, his own family home. Why? Because they wanted their hijrah to be complete. No return. That's what the Prophet wanted. This is why, despite Mecca being Mecca, despite Mecca being what it was to the Prophet when he turned away on his hijrah, he turned back. And he looked at Mecca and he prayed that, Oh Allah, this is the most beloved land of yours to me. And if it wasn't for the fact that these people drove me out, I would never leave it. Despite what Mecca meant to him, after the hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ did not stay in Mecca. He did Umrah, he did Hajj, he came for the Fath, the conquest, but each time he returned. Why? so that the hijrah would be complete and there would be no shortage or reduction of reward whatsoever. That's what hijrah meant. And he meant so much to the Sahaba عنهم, that we've all heard of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas. And I'll end with this. 
Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas was one of the earliest Muslims, one of the earliest people to do hijrah, one of the ten promised Jannah. And he was a famous conqueror and general, general and conqueror of Iraq, the leader of the Muslim forces in the decisive and winning battle of Qadisiyah. He was the one who conquered the Madain and the palaces of Khosrows in Persia. He was the conqueror of Iraq and Persia, one of the greatest leaders of the time. That was Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. But he was one of the first Muslims to embrace Islam. And he was actually one of the first Muslims to emigrate and do hijrah from Mecca to Medina. In Medina, Mus'ab ibn Umayr and Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum were the first to arrive. They would teach people the Qur'an. After them, the three that came were Ammar ibn Yasir, Bilal ibn Rabah, and Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. Sa'd radiyallahu an, he relates himself, and it's a very beautiful hadith. It's related by Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih. Many of you will be familiar with the word, and especially the talabatul ilm and the ulama. And it's a hadith related by Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih for your benefit. I relate, I relate to you with a continuous uninterrupted chain from me to Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi who says Abdullah ibn Yusuf related to us from Imam Malik, from Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, from Amir ibn Sa'ad, who relates from his father Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiyallahu anhu. Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiyallahu anhu says, I went to Mecca with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the farewell pilgrimage and I fell ill, seriously ill. So much so that I was close to death. The Prophet ﷺ came to see me in Mecca when I was severely ill. He came to visit me. And since I feared death, I said to the Prophet ﷺ, these aren't the words of the hadith, I feared death, but in another narration, I was close to death. He then said that I said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, pain has afflicted me to such a degree. And I have no family to succeed me except one daughter. What's a unique point about this hadith? Who relates a hadith from Sa'ad radiyallahu an? His son Amir. So Amir relates from his father. And my father said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came to visit me in Mecca in the farewell pilgrimage. And I said to him, Ya Rasulullah, Pain has afflicted me thus. And I have no family or children to succeed me except one daughter. So, O Prophet of Allah, I have wealth. Shall I leave a will for two-thirds of my wealth to be distributed? So the Prophet ﷺ said no. So his intention was that I give one-third to my daughter and two-thirds I leave instructions for two-thirds of my wealth to be distributed. So the Prophet ﷺ said no. Sa'ad radiyallahu anhu said, Half, ya Rasulullah. Prophet ﷺ said no. So he said one-third. So the Prophet ﷺ said one-third and even one-third is a lot. Then he said, oh Sa'ad, that you should leave your successors 
wealthy enough and self-sufficient, this is far better for you than leaving them in such a state that they extend their hands in begging to others. And O Sa'ad, any good deed that you perform, you will always be rewarded for it. Any good deed of charity. So much so, and these Sa'ad radiallahu anhu is lying on his bed, and he fears death, and he's asking the Prophet وسلم, about wasiyah, about his final will and testament. And the Prophet وسلم, is telling him, O oh, Sa'ad, any good deed that you do, you will be rewarded for it. So much so that even if you put a morsel of food in your wife's mouth, he's lying on his deathbed. And the Prophet وسلم, says, even a morsel of food that you put in your wife's mouth. Then Sa'ad radiallahu an said, and this is the main point of the hadith, that O Messenger of Allah, will I be kept behind after my companions? Meaning that you will all return to Medina. O Messenger of Allah, will I be left behind in Mecca? Why wouldn't anyone want to be left behind in Mecca? But no. For these Sahaba, عنهم, they came for the Hajjatul Wada'a, the farewell pilgrimage. But their hijrah was so paramount in their minds that Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas did not want to die even in Makkah al-Mukarrah. Why? They wanted their hijrah to be complete. They left Makkah, that's the meaning of hijrah. We did hijrah, that means we abandoned. We left everything, never to return again. And Sa'ad what he feared was that he would die in Makkah. So he said, Ya Rasulullah, will I be kept behind after my companions? Meaning you, you and the others will return and will I die in Mecca? And the Prophet وسلم, said to him, O Sa'ad, if you are kept behind, there is no good deed that you will do except that you will only rise in grade and in elevation. And O Sa'ad, look at the prophetic words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. O Sa'ad, it is highly possible that you will be kept behind. You will be kept behind. Such that many peoples, not one aqwam, many peoples will be benefited from you and many peoples will be harmed by you. And these were the words of the Prophet ﷺ. They were a prophecy. He's lying on his deathbed. But what it meant indeed, Sa'ad radiallahu an recovered. Not only did he recover from the illness of Hajjat al-Wada' at the time of the Hajjat al-Wada', he returned to Medina. Not only that, but after this incident, he lived for more than 40 years. And in those 40 years, he had children other than the daughter, including the same Amir rahimahullah, who narrates a hadith from him. And not only that, but as the Prophet said, it is highly possible, that it is highly possible that you are kept behind and many peoples are benefited by you and many peoples are harmed by you. Sa'ad radiallahu was lying on his deathbed when the Prophet told him this. He rose, recovered, returned to Medina, and thereafter he was the one who was the 
chief general and the conqueror of Qadisiyya, of Persia, of Iraq, and one of the generals responsible for vanquishing the Sassanid Persian Empire at the time. But anyway, that's the hadith, the most important part of the hadith that was relevant to us was Sa'ad radiyallahu an did not want to die even in Makkah al-Mukarramah. And the end of the hadith is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, these aren't his words, but the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, at the end of the hadith, it's mentioned that he was also, he also said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made dua. Allahumma amdi li ashabi hijratahum wa la taruddahum ala aqabihim. This is the main part of the hadith. He said, oh Allah, he made a dua to Allah, the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma amdi li ashabi hijratahum. Oh Allah, complete the hijrah of my companions. And do not let them return on their heels. I.e., make sure their hijrah is complete. And then the Prophet ﷺ expressed sorrow and sadness at Sa'd ibn Khawlah. Why did he express, and the ulama will recall the words of the hadith, Lakin il ba'is Sa'd ibn Khawlah. Sa'd ibn Khawlah, why did the Prophet ﷺ express regret and sorrow for him? He died in Mecca. Someone died in Mecca al Mukarramah. And the Prophet ﷺ is expressing regret and sorrow that he died in Mecca. Why? That's what Sa'd radiallahu anhu, both were called Sa'd. This was Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, he didn't want to die. But another Sa'd ibn Khawla, he did die in Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ was expressing regret and sorrow because Sa'd radiallahu anhu did hijrah from Mecca to Medina. After the hijrah, he remained with the Prophet ﷺ in Badr, in Uhud, in Khandaq, in Hudaybiyah. And then, on one occasion, he had to return to Mecca. When he returned to Mecca, he passed away. So the Prophet ﷺ was expressing sorrow and regret that Sa'd ibn Khawlah returned to Mecca and he died there. In a way, his hijrah was affected. It wasn't affected with Allah, but as far as Sa'ad, as far as the Prophet ﷺ and the other Sahaba were concerned, they would have wished that he died not in Mecca, but in Medina. This is how much the hijrah meant. This is why there is so much to learn about the hijrah before we can appreciate its true meaning. This is why our Islamic calendar which, whose new year begins next week, was instituted not with the birth of Islam, with the revelation of the Qur'an, or even the birth of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, or his passing away and departure from this world, or even with the miraculous journey of Isra and Mi'raj, or even with Badr, or with Khandaq, or with the Sulh of Hudaybiyah, or with the conquest of Mecca, or, e- or even with the Hajjat al-Wada'a, the farewell pilgrimage now. Of all the momentous events of the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum collectively chose to mark the beginning of the Islamic calendar with the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And this is why Umar radiyallahu because of this, and this is the reason why Umar radiyallahu anhum said at that time of instituting the calendar, he said, because hijrah was a criterion. And the, distinct, and the distinction between haqq and batil, between truth and falsehood. 
And this is why the Prophet ﷺ in the famous hadith of Niyyah, when he speaks about the sincerity of intention, the first hadith of Bukhari, the first hadith of many books, he doesn't just say, be sincere. His words are, whoever does hijrah to Allah and his Rasul ﷺ, then his hijrah is to Allah and his Rasul ﷺ. And whoever does hijrah to the dunya, that he wishes to acquire, or a woman that he seeks to marry, then his hijrah is to that to which he has done hijrah. Why mention hijrah in the context of sincerity of intention? Because it's a lesson for us that such a great deed that belonged only to an elite of a small number of sahaba radiallahu anhum, a distinction and an honor that can never be given or achieved or acquired by anyone else, even for that elite group, the Prophet ﷺ's message was, be mindful of your motive and your intention. Ensure that it is sincere. Ensure that it is pure. Even in an undertaking as the hijrah. If their intention was so precarious, even in hijrah, then what can be said of you and me? This is the significance of the hijrah, and this was just... These were just a few examples of the hijrah of the noble companions, radiyallahu anhum. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with the beginning of this new Islamic year next week, Allah enables us to appreciate the sacrifice of the noble sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, the sacrifice of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. May Allah enable us to follow in their noble footsteps. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.